0: We've covered a lot of strange cases on this program before, but I don't know that any have left me as perplexed as this one. Mary Shotwell Little disappeared without a trace in 1965 under very unusual circumstances. Join us today as we try to puzzle out what happened to the seemingly happy newlywed who was just starting her life before she vanished.
1: Missing, hidden—the
0: podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another exciting adventure known as the Killing Missing Hidden podcast. I'm your old buddy Brad, here to guide you down one heck of a mysterious path. And today we have the absolute delight and honor of being joined by a special guest. We have Winston and Elise from True Crime Cat Lawyer, the podcast that covers crime in the Northwest, hanging out. In fact, I can see Winston climbing all over everything in the background. So what's going on, friends?
1: It is so good to see you. Um, I'm super happy that Winston decided to join us.
0: Yep. Oh, and there she goes. (laughs) I am too. I feel very honored. I got to see her little bow tie. That was adorable.
1: Yes. Like I said, you are the longest she's ever appeared for someone that we've collaborated with.
0: Well, I am delightful, so I can understand why. All right. Now I will um, be brutally honest with you and say that my audience hates long intros. So Before I start getting death threats, why don't you tell us about your show and say 17 words or less?
1: Okay, so we, as you mentioned, we cover true crime in the Pacific Northwest. Um, We try to focus on the victims as best we can. And I try to put in as much lawyer talk as I can without getting too super boring on people. And every once in a while, Winston will join us for a conversation or two. How could lawyer talk ever be dull? You know, i like to also echo that sentiment, but I talked to lawyers every day, so.
0: (laughs) It it makes me think of that uh, meme from The Simpsons with Principal Skinner where he's like, am I out of touch? No, no, it's the children who are wrong. (laughs) So, um, so I always ask a get to know you question for our guests on the show. And, you know, I spent many an hour trying to come up with a good one for you to really show who you are to my audience. And so they would have, you know, a strong desire to want to come and check out your show. So the question I came up with is what sort of terrible childhood trauma did you suffer that made you want to go to law school?
1: (laughs) Um, So I'm not going to categorize it as trauma, but I used to (laughs) watch Perry Mason and Matlock with my grandpa um, and I just, I loved it. And I always wanted to be a criminal defense attorney.
0: Very cool. And how'd that go?
1: I went to law school, and I realized I do not want to be a criminal defense attorney.
0: <laughs> I, I heard that from very many of my classmates as well. It's it's to me, it's the most fun law to practice, but it's probably the worst paying law to practice.
1: For me, it wasn't so much about the money; it was about my emotional and mental well being. I'm someone who cares yeah. a lot. And I think that it probably would have sucked the life out of me.
0: Uh, It can be tough. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm with you there. So um, now would you say that it's, I would describe law school as kind of like having your soul slowly flayed from your body for three years. Is that pretty close to your experience?
1: I think so. You know, as you were saying all of that, I just kind of pictured like a dementor, like sucking the life out of someone. Like that's kind of what you invoked in my brain as you were describing the experience. So I think that's on point.
0: While they're screaming at you about the rule against perpetuities and other things like that. Yes. Yeah. So listeners don't let your kids grow up to be lawyers. All right. Uh, And before I forget, I have to do a special shout out. This episode is being recorded because of our listener, Ginger. She recommended it and I've had lots of listeners recommend lots of shows and I'm way far behind on that. But Ginger, we got to you today. So thank you for sharing this case with us. All right. So we're going to go ahead and jump into the SWACO case. It's all about a woman named Mary Shotwell Little. We're gonna go back in time and space to Atlanta, Georgia in October of 1965. This is kind of an interesting here in US history because you've got the civil rights movement in full swing. You've got Martin Luther King Jr. leading his famous marches in Selma, Alabama. Meanwhile, Malcolm X is assassinated in New York during this time. The first combat troops are arriving in Vietnam, which, of course, leads to draft riots throughout the country. The Voting Rights Act, which is a popular topic today, is signed into law. And Hurricane Betsy smashes into New Orleans, causing over $1 billion in unadjusted damages the first time a storm caused so much devastation. And for fun, my wife's name is Betsy, so I try to call her Billion Dollar Betsy, but she doesn't appreciate it as much as I do. (laughs) Um, We also have the St. Louis Arch being completed in this year. Robert Downey Jr., Iron Man himself, was born. And I know, Elise, you'll love this. The Undertaker, the famous wrestler, was also born in 1965. Oh, my gosh. (laughs)
1: I didn't realize. See what I dug Robert up Downey just for you? <laughs> I didn't realize they were the same age.
0: Uh, they do not look the same age, but they've taken very no. different career paths. <laughs> so, if you happen to go to Atlanta during this time warp and you decide to visit the CNS Bank, not only do you have your time travel priorities all out of whack, but you may have met a 25-year-old secretary working there by the name of. Mary Shotwell, a little. She was a Caucasian female, about five six, had light brown hair, green eyes, wore glasses. She was considered pretty in an unassuming way, which I don't quite know what that means, but that's how she was described. Um, she was well liked at the bank. She had lots of friends there. She was considered a hard worker, and she just she was the sort that just kind of had this gravity about her where people would fall in and like her and so she had a pretty big circle of friends now during this time mary was a newlywed she had just married roy little junior a bank examiner who was working at the bank she was at they had married in early september i think labor day but i couldn't confirm that and they lived you know a basic but happy life together a fun fact for me is their first date was an Alabama Georgia Tech football game. So I have to say roll are tied on that one. On October 14th, Roy was out of town as part of his training as he was trying to become a bank auditor. Mary was missing her newlywed husband and was excited for him to come back and actually decided to throw a little bit of a surprise party for him. So after work on the 14th, she went to the Lenox Square shopping mall, where she bought some groceries for the party. She did a little bit of window shopping and then met up with a friend slash co-worker for dinner at the cafeteria there. They finished their meal around 8 p.m. and then went their some uh, separate ways and Mary just kind of disappeared. That's the last time anyone saw her that we know for a fact, but we may have some sightings if I can foreshadow a little bit. Now, this Lenox Square Mall is considered a very safe mall. It's very well lit, very busy, lots of security, and it's located in Buckhead, which is like the wealthy part of Atlanta. Some call it the Beverly Hills of the South, which I think, I've never been to Beverly Hills, but that seems a little generous for Buckhead. Um, But it is a nice part of Atlanta. It's got some crazy houses. Uh, Yeah, I, I guess I'm just scarred by Atlanta and it's traffic and all of the nonsense that goes on downtown. Uh, Lenox Square is still around actually, and it's still a pretty fancy mall to visit. Uh, They've even let people like me in there. Now, this so October 14th back in 1965 was a Thursday. So Friday rolls around and Mary doesn't show up for work and she didn't call in sick and this was very much unlike her, so her coworkers and her boss were a little concerned, and decided to call her at her home. But the calls went unanswered. So then her boss called her landlord, as they were renting a house, and asked to see if, you know, she could check see if uh, Mary was there, or if anything was wrong. And she said she wasn't there, but she noticed the morning paper hadn't been picked up. Now the coworker that she had dinner with talked to Mary's boss and they decided to call the mall security to see if Mary's car, which was a 1965 Mercury Comet was still there. Mall security poked around and said, Nope, we ain't got a car like that. For whatever reason, Either he's a really good boss or something else is going on. The boss just can't live with this. So at lunchtime, he and the coworker who ate dinner with Mary go to the mall. And when they get there, the car is right where the coworker said it would be. They um, noticed that it was not ticketed. And apparently, it was the procedure for the mall security to ticket any car that stayed the night. It was also unusual looking in that it had a bunch of red dust over it, which would be our famous Southern red clay. So it was very dirty and the plates on the car had been changed. Instead of having Georgia plates, it had North Carolina plates. Now police were called, they came in, they interviewed, The mall security, they interviewed anybody who would have been there during the night or in the early morning hours. And none of them ever saw this vehicle. They said it was gone. You know, the people that came into work early that morning, they didn't see it when they parked in the same area. It just didn't exist. Police then decide to, you know, investigate the inside of the car. And they find that the groceries Mary bought were still in the back seat. They found on the console between the two front seats were Mary's slip, girdle, bra, panties, and a single stocking, which had a cut in it that appeared to be from a knife. None of her outer garments could be found, nor could even the jewelry she regularly wore. And there was also a little bit of blood, which is probably worth mentioning. Uh, it was later confirmed to be Mary's blood. There wasn't much of it. It's not like, you know, a scene from a horror movie. Uh, some of the articles I found said it was basically about as much blood as you would expect from a nosebleed, but it had been smeared around quite a bit. So police were of the opinion that this was a little bit staged because that little amount of blood was covering a lot of different places. They even found on the steering wheel a fingerprint in the blood. And not to play spoiler, but that fingerprint was never, ever, ever identified. There's also some drops of blood on Mary's clothing. There was some blood on the headrest of the driver's seat. Police uh, would later learn from Mary's husband. He kept meticulous records of the driving of the vehicles. and. Mary's car had 41 miles that could not be accounted for, which we'll get into a little bit more down the line. But he, again, as a bank examiner, he worked for the state of Georgia, not for the bank itself. So he would travel to different banks to do his thing. And so he would be used to keeping a log of his travels. And I couldn't confirm this, but some sources said that That Mercury Comet was actually his car, not Mary's. And she was just using it while he was out of town on training. So we start off with a lot of fun, unanswered questions. You know, why is Mary's car so dirty? Why is there blood in the car? Why were all of Mary's undergarments placed so delicately on the center console? Why did her vehicle have North Carolina plates? Stolen, North Carolina by the way and what did those 41 unaccounted miles really mean was it really possible for mary to have been overpowered and kidnapped in such a well-lit high-trafficked area without anyone noticing so we're off to a good start here uh we've got no information and all these questions so we'll uh Go through some more of the evidence and find a whole lot more questions and very few answers. Police naturally expand their uh, investigation to start speaking with Mary's co-workers. Several shared that Mary had recently been expressing a fear of being alone. She didn't even like driving alone. She had also been receiving odd calls at work. She wouldn't talk to anybody about what these calls were about, but like one coworker told the police that she ended one of these calls by tersely saying, I'm a married woman now, and then hanging up. She shortly before she disappeared, she started receiving flowers uh, that were addressed from a secret admirer. And it was always the same thing. It was a small vase with five roses in it, which, which, is an odd number to me i don't know if that meant something different in the 60s police found the floral shop where the flowers were being delivered from but they had no invoices indicating who had purchased the flowers none of the delivery boys said they had ever delivered flowers to the bank and when the flower order was described, the shop owner remembered someone purchasing it, but could only describe him as a white male. So that eliminates almost no one. Of course, in 1965, they don't have the benefit of the internet and computers and all that stuff. So a couple of weeks after Mary is gone, the Atlanta police learned from Charlotte police that her gas card had been used twice in North Carolina. The first time was 12 hours after she was last seen, so 8 in the morning. And it was used in Raleigh, North Carolina, that's about 250 miles or 400 kilometers from Atlanta. And... It was then used four hours later in Charlotte, which it would take about two and a half hours to get from Raleigh to Charlotte. So what would if if it took Mary twelve hours to get to North Carolina when it's only, you know, a four hour drive for most people, what was going on? I can't answer that. That's just a question I can raise. Now, to make this a little bit more interesting, Mary was born and raised in Charlotte. But none of her family claimed to have ever seen her or had any contact with her during this time frame. The local police visited the two gas stations where Mary's gas card was used. And both of the attendants remembered seeing her. They described her as being confused, disheveled, and she was sporting a minor head injury. And she was not alone. She was escorted by two men, both middle-aged, pretty large and athletic-looking, both unshaven. And both attendants said that when Mary came to pay for the gas, she did her best to hide her face and she wouldn't make eye contact. The gas station uh, credit slips were signed by Mary, according to the attendants, and this was later confirmed by Mary's family that it was her signature. One of the attendants found the entire situation just kind of odd. It didn't sit right in his belly. So when the threesome left after purchasing gas, he wrote down the license plate number of the vehicle. And that matched the stolen plates on Mary's car in Georgia. So let's pause and do some math because of course at our core, this is a mathematics podcast. So like I said, October 14th was a Thursday. Mary's last seen around 8 p.m. So let's say she's abducted at her car and forced to immediately drive to Charlotte. They should have arrived around midnight. From there, they go to Raleigh, and somewhere in all this mess, we've got this extra 12 hours built in that can't really be explained by any of the evidence. And so it's around noon when the second uh, gas card transaction occurs. Now, remember, the boss goes to the shopping mall at lunchtime and finds Mary's car there. Yet we have documents saying that her car, or at least a similar car with the same license plate number, is getting gas in Raleigh at the same time. So, how do you jive, make that jive? It. It. I don't know. Am I missing something?
1: No, I'm very confused. <laughs> yes. Yes,
0: I am too. So, if we believe, if we follow the trail of the gas stationery seats, and if we assume that they're swiped, at accurate times, and we can build a timeline for that. And then the earliest Mary's vehicle could return to Atlanta would have been around 7 p.m., so basically a 24-hour trip. Of course, this doesn't match with what everybody else says about it. They found the car around noon. Police were called shortly thereafter, so they saw it. Mall security witnessed it being there. They witnessed it not being there. And we have these records that show the car was driven 41 extra miles when it would have taken over 800 miles to get to do the circuit from Atlanta to Charlotte to Raleigh back to Atlanta. Now, what I'm not certain on when it comes to that 41 miles is it just says they were unaccounted for. So does that mean we're accounting for the traveling to North Carolina? or is it 41 miles in spite of the trip to North Carolina? And I can't tell if it's just the way the newspapers at the time worded the article. It, so that's very confusing to me too. Now, you know, this kind of highlights for everyone listening. Why trying to unravel a mystery from 50 plus years ago using only internet sources and having only seven days to do it is a lot of fun. You know, podcasters like us try to give you the best information we can, but sometimes there's some snags we can't quite work out. Now, after the news of Mary's disappearance began appearing in the newspapers, Roy, her husband, received a pretty troubling phone call. This fella on the other end of the line said if Roy would give him $20,000, he would exchange it for Mary. He was told to go to an overpass in a remote part of North Carolina with the cash in a bag. Roy was told that when he arrived at that overpass, he would receive additional instructions. So, of course, Roy goes to the cops with this. The FBI becomes involved. And an FBI agent who kind of favored Roy said, I'll dress up as you. I'll go out there so you're not in any danger. So he goes to this overpass in North Carolina with, you know, fake money and the whole shebang. And when he gets there on the back of a road sign, he notices a letter taped there. So he goes, he opens up the letter, and guess what it says? Nothing.
1: Oh.
0: (laughs) It's totally blank. There's no information in there. While all this is going on, Roy receives another phone call from a Calvin Allen, who is a man Roy does not know. None of Mary's friends knew of the man. And he called just to express his sympathies for Roy's loss. So, either this is somebody who's really, really kind-hearted and just trolls the newspaper looking for tragedies. Or maybe there's something darker there. Now, of course, police had to investigate Roy because it's always the husband, right? Interestingly, some of Mary's friends had expressed... An opinion that they weren't terribly fond of Roy. There was even a couple who refused to attend their wedding because of their opinion of Roy. Now, having said that, people at the bank found him to be he, he was demanding. He was pretty rigid in his approach. But he's an auditor, you know? He he he's like an accountant, he's a math nerd. So you expect that from him, right? Uh, and having said all that, in spite of him being a little demanding and rigid, everybody liked him. Nobody at the bank really spoke poorly of him. They said he was a good guy, had a good sense of humor and things like that. Um Police, though, were really suspicious of Roy because he never asked for updates on the investigation. He never met with police. He refused to speak to him. Uh, they asked several times for him to take a polygraph and he adamantly refused. The only interest he really showed in the investigation was he kept pestering the police about when can I get my car back? But he has a very, very solid alibi. You know, he went to this training outside of Atlanta. Um, I never nailed down exactly where it was. But it was not in Atlanta. He rode with a friend to this place. Everybody saw him there. He signed in every morning. He had a hotel they checked into. So there's just no evidence that Roy was directly involved in his wife's disappearance. And there's no evidence that Roy benefited from her death. She didn't have a large life insurance policy or anything like that. So if anything, I mean, to be callous about it, this is a burden for Roy. He now has to bury his wife, pay for those expenses and deal with all that. Based on the secret phone calls and those weird flower deliveries, some of the detectives were of the mind that Mary was having an affair even though she was a newlywed, but her friends and co-recorders just came to her defense and said, there's just no way. Like she was an open book. She told us everything. She wouldn't have kept that hidden from us. Now let's make it even more exciting and more fun. The bank itself was being investigated, or at least this branch of the bank was being investigated. By the bank's headquarters, they actually had hired a retired FBI agent to work as a plant in the bank. And guess what he was investigating? A prostitution ring.
1: (laughs) They thought that there was... I would not have guessed that.
0: (laughs) No, not at all. Apparently, across the street from this branch was a hotel that was known to... Offer specific services for male guests, and somehow it was believed that the bank was. I think the theory was the bank was allowing their property to be used by some of these women of the night, but I never got the full story on that. And Mary was never implicated in any of this, thank goodness but it's odd to have that cloud hanging over the bank branch right when one of their employees go missing. Now, a few weeks later, after this has gotten a lot of press in the news and was all over the Atlanta newspapers and whatnot, a woman came to the police claiming that she was at the Lenox Square Mall the same night Mary went missing. She claims she left the mall a little bit before eight, and after entering her car, A large man knocked on her window to let her know that she had a flat tire and he would be happy to change it. But something about this man didn't sit right with the woman. So she said, no, no, it's fine. And he's like, no, you've got a flat tire. Let me help you get out of your car. And she said, no, no, that's cool. And she drove to the nearest service station and all of her tires were fine. Um, Fun
1: fact, guess why this woman was at the mall?
0: I'll let you guess.
1: I really have no I really have no idea because you've blown my mind with all of these fun facts that you've given me so far.
0: She was at the mall to walk her cat. <laughs>
1: yeah. Like I said, I would have never in a million years put that thought out there. I just
0: can't imagine being the detective that meets this woman. And she comes in and tells her story. And then I have to say, well, what were you doing at the mall? And she says, oh, I was walking my cat. And I have to try to keep a straight face. So um, even though the woman woman was able to give a pretty detailed description of the man who approached her car, they never found this guy they called the tire man. Uh, Police continued to receive random tips, not a single one of which bore any fruit. On October 28th, so two weeks later, an anonymous note was found at another bank branch claiming that Mary was about 65 miles north of Atlanta. That Same day, a cook at a local restaurant claimed that Mary had come in to eat dinner with another man around 9.30, but they left after less than 30 minutes because they just couldn't stop arguing. On November 2nd, we get another anonymous tip that claimed Mary's body could be found in a rock quarry located in Whites, Georgia. Now, the problem is this rock quarry was about an acre in size. And of course, just full of water and the water, the top of the water was 180 feet from the quarry's top. So there wasn't really a way to search this area effectively. Another anonymous letter that came in around the same time said that Mary had been seen in Jacksonville, Florida at an attorney's office to inquire about how she could obtain a divorce. The police found the attorney that she supposedly saw and he had no record of meeting with Mary or with anyone who even resembled Mary. On November 10th, a woman received a threatening phone call from a man who described her house in detail, knew all of her children's names, and made a bunch of vulgar comments to her and saying that if she hung up the same thing that happened to Mary would happen to her. He didn't specify which Mary, but it's odd. It's certainly odd. He also claimed to have killed eleven other women, so not not a cool guy. Another tip sent police to a picnic area. Where some people said Mary had been kind of ritualistically killed. And they actually found a picnic table that had these really weird reddish brown stains all over it. So, of course, they get their forensic people in there. They take apart the picnic table, take it back to the lab. And sure enough, the stains are not blood. So, another dead end. Now, arguably, The best tip the police received, and we don't even know if it's accurate, but it came from an inmate about a year later. He claimed that he knew who had murdered Mary, where her body was, and that the kidnapping and murder was a contract job. Her body was allegedly at a construction site, and when police went there, there was evidence suggesting that in this nice flat foundation that was being laid, somebody had been digging around near the back of it and left roughly a human-sized hole there that had been disturbed. But, it, it, oh, and on top of this dug-up area, there is a very, very large stone put on top of it. So they go dig it up, nothing there. So to this day, Mary's car keys, her purse, her jewelry, which included her engagement ring, her wedding ring and her collegiate ring and her raincoat and her outer clothing have never been found. The case just simply remains unsolved. It's reported by some outlets that this was the most investigated case in Georgia history. And that the size of the file was immense. They compared it to the size of the file the FBI had on Robert Kennedy's assassination. But that may all be an urban legend, because guess what? The police have lost Mary's file. It has totally vanished. No one can find it anywhere. I'm shocked. It's surprising. Um... So, now this seems like a natural stopping point, doesn't it? You know, we've kind of run out of leads. We've learned that they bore no fruit. We can't even file the DAGAM police file anymore. We should just end it here. But we can't. We're not that lucky. So, since Mary went missing, of course, the bank had to find someone to replace her because they got to keep making money. Enter Diana Shields, a blue-eyed blonde from Gunnersville, Alabama, who was looking for a fresh start after her college boyfriend had dumped her to marry another woman. She had some friends in Atlanta. They knew about this opening. She applied and was hired by CNS. She actually worked at Mary's desk. She performed Mary's job. This all started in November of 1965, just to give you a little bit of a timeline. She moved to Atlanta and found an apartment, but she started getting harassed by this strange man who would knock on her door at all hours and you know insisted on her opening the door. He wanted to talk to her, he wanted to meet her, he liked her, whatever. She, of course, refused, uh, the man was got creepy, as men often do, said, Hey, I know you just moved here. Hey, I know you're alone. Don't you want to be friends? She would call the police, but he'd always depart before the police could get there. Finally, by the next summer, she had had enough of this dude. So she moved in to a new apartment building that was much larger, much nicer. And she's had some roommates. And those roommates just happened to be Mary's former roommates. Later that year, and I can never nail down the exact timeline, she came into work at CNS Bank and just quit. She said, I'm done. I can't work here anymore. And she ended up working for Associate Industries of Georgia, which happened to have an office a few blocks away. As soon as she began working for her new employer, she started receiving flowers, five roses in a face from a secret admirer. This time, the police were able to track down the sender of the roses. And it turned out to be a former CNS employee who was fired for harassing female employees. He claimed he had never sent any roses to Mary and he had only sent roses to Diane because he thought she was kind of cute and he had been thinking about her. Shortly after she received the roses, Diane received a phone call from a man who claimed to work for the post office, saying that he had a certified letter she needed to sign for. And he gave her an address to come meet him. And it was in a really bad part of town. So Diane called the post office and they confirmed that they did have an employee by that name, but he worked way across town. So he wouldn't have anything to do with Diane's mail. And they also said, look, if we've got a certified letter for you, you need to come to us. You know, we don't meet people in vacant parking lots. (laughs) So Diane's having a weird time in Atlanta, as Mary was. On New Year's Eve, Diane gets engaged to her boyfriend, an event that her roommates did not care for. They did not like him. And in fact, the tension was so high, Diane had to move out of the apartment and move in with her sister until the wedding. On May 19th, 1967, Diane left for work, put in a full day. She was seen getting in her car by the vice president, one of the vice presidents of the company, around 5.03 p.m. And Diane never made it home. Several days later, her body was found in her car on the side of a laundry, kind of parked behind the dumpsters. She was stuffed in the trunk. She had, depending on which reports you read, either pages from a phone book or her scarf and pages from a phone book shoved down her throat. And witnesses said they saw two pretty large intimidating men leaving the car at the laundry. So they just didn't care. They apparently killed her and left her there to be found by the police. Uh, One of Diane's best friends admitted that she had been receiving these phone calls and was scared and whatnot, but she wouldn't call the police over it. There was a man by the name of Clarence Lee Crumbly, who was a former bank employee. And he started spreading news that the police needed to be looking at the bank and the executives because the bank had loaned out too much money and was really openly scared within the office of what was going to happen because they had loaned out too much money. Now Crumbly, of course, when he raised concerns about this happening, he was fired and... He suggested the police search the personnel department as they were unusually involved in trying to solve the bank's problem here. Several other members of the bank experienced some unusual experiences. One guy who worked there was kidnapped for 24 hours, then kicked out of the car on a dirt rural road and shot in the foot and had to walk back to town in that condition. And he would never tell police who it was or what the deal was with that. There were a few employees who told the police off the record that Mary had admitted she stumbled into something she shouldn't have seen, but she never told them exactly what she saw. And two years after she went missing, Mary's mother called up, Lily, lead detective and said I can't do this anymore I need y'all to stop investigating you know Mary's dead in my mind let's just let her be we fast forward to 2019 and a cold case detective with the Atlanta Police Department reported receiving a tip that she claimed would break Diane's case wide open as they never found the, her killers And hopefully with it, would provide some insight on what happened to Mary. It was apparently an email that was sent to the detective herself and contained just a ton of information about Diane's death that was never released publicly. The man who sent it claimed he was a jilted lover of of Diane's. But from what I can tell, nothing ever surfaced from that tip. So that's our story. That's the tale of Mary Shotwell Little, a missing person's case that looks like it may never be solved. Of course, I hope I'm wrong. But how many unanswered questions can you have? And then you've got time eroding so many sources of potential answers. It just, you, you have to be pessimistic about it, I think. And, you know, looking at it, it's frustrating that you can't even put together a timeline that makes sense. To build a timeline of any sort, you have to ignore evidence, which seems like a bad way to analyze a case. There are some who think that the North Carolina part of this tale is a red herring, and it was designed to lead police away from where the abduction and likely murder took place. The idea being that the woman that was seen in Charlotte and in Raleigh was not actually Mary, but somebody who was kind of a plant. Because the attendants couldn't say that it was Mary based on the picture the police showed. Because again, the woman didn't make eye contact. She kept her, you know, she didn't want to look people in the eyes. She was keeping her head down. Um, and no handwriting analysis was done on the credit slips. It was just Mary's parents saying, yeah, that looks like her signature. So it's possible, I suppose, that this was just a really beautifully executed ruse. But the planning this would take is impressive. But if you buy into it, it does help solve the timeline problem because you can kind of ignore everything that happened in North Carolina. There's lots of internet rumors, not sources, but just rumors that insists the car Mary was seen riding around in in North Carolina was not a Mercury Comet, but some sort of just basic sedan. And again, if that's true, that kind of helps solve some of the timeline problems the mileage issues, things like that. If we accept that is true, though, that means Mary's car didn't leave Georgia. There's only the 41 miles on it. So it had to have traveled down some dirt road within 20 miles of the mall based on the mileage logs. And... I'm inclined to give those mileage laws a fair bit of uh, deference since the man keeping them had to keep them for his job. But again, I don't know if this was his car or if it was Mary's car. That's not explained in any of the articles I could found. Um, You know, uh, if you couple these suspicions with Mary's undergarments being left in the car and this North Carolina plate being stuck on the vehicle, it really paints a picture of a fairly sophisticated crime, which would mean professionals of some sort were involved. Now, I wish there was more information surrounding what was going on at the bank. From what I could tell, they had loaned out a ton of money, but Atlanta was in a growing phase and every bank was throwing as much money at construction companies as they could as the city just sprawled out and new industry and new residential properties were just being built as quickly as they could. If Mary had discovered something irregular in some banking records and had told the wrong person about it, Entirely possible, the attitude is we just need to shut her up. She's a nobody. And, you know, it's, I think a pretty well-known fact that the traditional mob has always been involved in the construction industry. Um, I know during my career, I've run into the mob dealing with certain industries, never the construction industry. Um, But I'm aware from other attorneys that they do have a big stake in producing construction equipment, like say concrete and things like that. So it may be that Mary gets dumped in a foundation that's poured over with concrete before police ever have a chance to find her. Um, Now, of course, all of this doesn't jive with our crazy cat lady and her story. So, either this was a crime of opportunity and Mary was the unlucky person to get caught, or the cat lady just created this for attention. And that sounds silly to say, but it's shocking how many people love going to the police and trying to insert themselves into criminal investigations, particularly big ones. And Mary's was a big one at the time, just so they, I guess, feel like they've got something important to contribute to society. My experience has always been it's folks who kinda don't have a lot going on in their life, you know, especially elderly folks who live alone, don't have any kids. Um, or folks with, you know, some mental handicaps uh, that just like the attention they're getting. Now, where Brad cannot get past is that stupid North Carolina license plate being on Mary's car. There's some that claim this never happened, but every source I found that was printed and published said it did. So let's just assume the newspapers are right and random people on the internet are wrong and the tags are changed. This has to be part of the game to throw the police off the scent, right? Well, this plus the strange phone calls Mary received at work, it raises the specter that Mary may have had a lover in North Carolina before she moved to Atlanta. Uh, and maybe he's kind of a possessive ex-boyfriend. Uh, you know, it. I have a hard time imagining in 1960s culture, a woman getting terse with, say, a customer or her boss or something like that, and there not being some ramifications for it. But as somebody who's a stranger to her employer... And someone that she would have a relationship with, she probably could snap at him and get away with it, and it wouldn't be a big deal. And there's one coworker who said that she overheard Mary telling this anonymous caller that she couldn't come there, but he could come to her. So this means you can stop by my desk, you can stop by my building you can stop by my house we don't know but you can make an argument i think that this could have been pulled off by somebody from her hometown and it kind of would be a lot easier for somebody to create that fake trail in north carolina if they live in north carolina so i i can entertain that idea i don't know if i buy it And people who have talked to Mary's friends in North Carolina said that when she was in high school, when she was in college, she really didn't date much. She was very focused on her academics. And so she's not some flirt out there attracting men left and right. You know, she, she was a very focused woman. And there's one last oddity that's just a little oddity. And I'm a dumb husband. So this is well outside my area of expertise, but do you buy groceries before you go to dinner with a friend and just leave them in the back of your car? That just strikes me as odd, especially when you're planning a party for your husband. There has to be something in there that's perishable. I, I mean, I can't believe she just bought cereal and pasta and things like that, you know, there's gotta be ice cream or milk <laughs> or cream or something. But again, I'm outside of yeah. my element when it comes to groceries. Every time I get sent to the grocery store, I come back with the wrong thing, so. <laughs> um, there's lots of theories I'm not gonna discuss because it would take another hour that she just abandoned her life to start a new one, or she was kidnapped and forced to live some life of servitude. Frankly, there's just too much meat on this bone for one man to consume, you know, even with the help of a cat lawyer. Um, I just don't know what to say. Do you have any questions or thoughts or was this just too overwhelming?
1: So, (laughs) It was a little overwhelming, but I think that I kind of took the North Carolina piece in a different way. Mm-hmm. I almost felt like that the Karen being in Georgia was kind of a red herring and that she actually was in North Carolina and all of that was kind of real and they were in a similar car in North Carolina, but not obviously the same car cause our car is found in Georgia. Um, but that's kind of where my mind went. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know why, but I, I kind of like your theory of, you know, she has someone in North Carolina that couldn't really let go when she moved to Georgia. Mm-hmm think that kind of explains the North Carolina route it explains the flowers and the phone calls um, and I think I think it's um, interesting to kind of tell the story of Diane but it's also I mean there's more than one creepy man out there who right. may or may not stalk women I think we both know that so it's perfectly plausible that somebody different would creep out diane versus creep out mary Mm -hmm. um but there are a lot of similarities that you know i do wonder if there is some kind of relation because you you had described two intimidating men in mary's case as well right yes
0: according to the uh, gas station so that's
1: right so that to me like was really interesting that connection Mm -hmm. um just because it i don't know it just it's very interesting and i don't know if you were able to kind of find this in your research but was the bank still being investigated for kind of this prostitution ring at the time diane worked there as well
0: i never found how long the investigation lasted but From kind of reading in between the lines. I think it had resolved before Diane started working there. But the hotel across the street was still doing its thing.
1: Okay. So it's always possible that she knew about whatever was going on over there, even if she wasn't necessarily involved herself.
0: Right. And I found some antidotes that... On the fourth floor, people had a very good view of what was going on in the hotel. And a lot of the men during their lunch break would spend their time on the fourth floor with a pair of binoculars, (laughs) which is super awesome. And not creepy at all. Not the least bit creepy. (laughs) But, you know, I started looking... Again, this was recommended by our listener, Ginger, who I love that she, she suggested something. And I hate that she suggested this case because it was like wrestling an octopus. I can't put together anything that makes any sense in my mind to explain this mess. I mean, it's so weird that you have Mary working a job and disappears. And then her replacement experiences a lot of the same things Mary experienced. And then she's found dead. Um, it's, it's weird.
1: Well, and like, I think what was really weird is that it's almost like she had kind of taken over Mary's life because she was like living in the same kind of apartment Mm -hmm. at first. She was working her job, working at her desk. Then she moves in with Mary's old roommates and all of the weird things like happened to her. Like, it's just really
0: creepy. Yep. And then she gets and engaged and the roommates don't like that guy either when they didn't like Mary's boy toy. It's what it's just weird.
1: Yeah, so like for me it would be weirder if they weren't connected, like if somehow, you know, we solve their cases and they turn out not to be related. Like that's going to be super weird to me just because of all of the similarities that they have. Mm. And
0: and it could totally be absolutely unrelated. I mean, there's nothing that ties them together other than these just weird coincidences. Right. But every time you look up Mary's case, you see stuff about Diane and vice versa.
1: Well, and, you know, obviously the biggest difference is that they found Diane and they haven't mm-hmm. found Mary. You know, I... I would assume that we're kind of operating under the theory that Mary is no longer with us, but her body has never been found. And it's, if they are related, it's kind of a different MO in some respects, you know, to have one body be found and the other not.
0: Right. And no effort even made to hide the body. In Diane's case, I mean, literally parking her car next to a laundromat and just leaving it there. Um, Right. Like
1: I, if, as far as I can remember from, you know, what you were telling me, like her body wasn't covered up by like a blanket or a jacket or anything like that. It was just sort of, like you said, there in the car for whoever walked by to see. Mm -hmm.
0: It was in the trunk. So it was covered up a little. Okay. But, um, I mean, again, it's parked, not in a parking spot, just behind the dumpsters at the laundromat. And the interior obviously looked like it had been trashed. And so it caught people's attention. Uh, Especially, I mean, again, you've got the two men just walking out apparently in broad daylight or early enough during the evening that there's people walking around and report seeing these two weird men getting out of this car. Right. It's just wild. So, I hate cases like this so much, because I at least like to be able to, like, plant my flag on some sort of theory and say, this is what I think happened. But here, I got nothing.
1: No. I I will say, though, I think that the cat lady was more of kind of a inserting herself person.
0: It feels that way.
1: That's just kind of the vibe I get from her story. Although... I do treasure the fact that she so happily admitted that she was walking her cat at the mall.
0: <laughs> I I can't imagine trying to take a cat on a walk at a mall.
1: I I didn't know that was something that people did in the 60s. I thought that was more of like a millennial kind of thing that you do with your cat. <laughs>
0: I, I guess so. I could see a hipster doing it just to draw <laughs> attention to himself, but I mean, I can't get my cats to walk downstairs without it becoming this, you know, sitcom type deal. It, it's just, wow.
1: Yeah. I've so. put a harness on Winston before and she inexplicably lost the ability to use her back legs. <laughs> yeah.
0: uh, we've had the exact same experience. It They just collapse. It's like you've, Hit him with a tranquilizer dart. (laughs) So, well, if anybody out there has any theories they want to share, please send them to me because this case is going to keep me up for several nights. Thanks, Ginger. Um, Now, Elise, we have a tradition here on our podcast where we end every episode with our palate cleanser. Okay. Which is typically a joke of suspect quality selected by my eight-year-old son. (laughs) So I gave him a special mission because you were going to be on the show and said, you need to find something cat related. That's only appropriate, right? So this is what he came up with. If you're ready for it.
1: I am. I'm actually really excited about this.
0: (laughs) Okay. Just prepare yourself because. His words were, it's so good, it'll make your butt fall off. (laughs) I'm ready. Okay. And that's not me. I'm not making that guarantee. That's him. (laughs) All right. So what is a cat's favorite color? Is it purple? Oh, you nailed it. You nailed (laughs) it. 100% right. (laughs) <laughs> that will probably disappoint Mr. Eli, but I'm impressed. I'm very impressed.
1: Um, I like Eli. I've never met him and I've only heard about him in this joke, but he sounds like someone I would get along with very well if he could make up such stellar cat jokes.
0: Yeah, he, well, he's a, uh, a connoisseur of elementary level jokes. And uh, he's had some pretty good ones. He was proud of this one. He'll be disappointed that it didn't stump you, though.
1: <laughs> but, well, you can you can fib a little and tell uh, him that my my uh, butt did indeed fall out, and I was you know <laughs> this was a, we'll a split real the baby.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, tell him you got it right, but that you did have some some problems with your backside <laughs> in the process. So. Well, that's going to do it. I mean, again, I just, I can't talk about this case anymore without getting confused, uh, angry, hungry, but I'm always hungry. Um, So we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, If you would, please tell everybody where they can find your podcast.
1: Yes, we are on Instagram, Facebook uh, at True Crime Cat Lawyer, Twitter at True Crime Cat Law, and you can find us on pretty much every podcast platform. True Crime Cat Lawyer.
0: So basically, all you have to do is make some effort to look for True Crime Cat Lawyer, and you will find True Crime Cat Lawyer. Yes. Yes, that's my and I experience. Found out that too. Even
1: if you. Yes. Even if you just Google cat lawyer or cat crime, I tend to come up.
0: Ah, look at you. Maximizing the Googleness. (laughs) You can probably type in the entire name of my podcast and nothing will come up. I've never gotten good at that stuff. So anyway, um, thank you for being here. I hope our story wasn't too infuriating for you
1: no thank you for having me and it was definitely a super interesting one probably one that will keep me up as well with all the questions
0: cause why'd she have groceries in her car if she's gonna go eat dinner that doesn't make sense <laughs> alright well with that I'll end the episode here I will thank you all for tuning in you survived another episode
1: of and missing, hidden. The podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.